Welcome to the Hiccups in History podcast. I want to start off today's episode by saying that I am sorry for any background noises you may hear while I'm recording. You see, I have an AC unit in the window because it's summertime, but because I have an AC unit in the window, it means that my soundproofing in this room isn't the best, so I'm going to be working on that. So if you hear the stray car or anything like that, just give me a little bit of a leeway. More importantly, I want to apologize for my absence. There is a long, podcast-worthy story behind my absence, but since I'm not a figure of historical note yet, I will move on to the snowy tundras of Russia and the slightly less-than-average-sized man who marched a not-so-inconsiderably-sized army into said snowy tundra. There are many things in life you should never do. Walk across the street without looking both ways. Consuming substances which are intended for laundry or cleaning-based usages. Picking a fight with the IRS. The list goes on and on. Housed within said list, nestled between fighting the emus and playing golf in a thunderstorm, you will find invading Russia. You should never invade Russia. Ever. Period. I could say with certainty that if Sun Tzu had known about Russia's existence when he was writing The Art of War, he would have put Do Not Invade Russia in big, bold letters right next to When Possible, Always Hold the High Ground. But Trey, I hear you ask, why can't we invade Russia? Well, first of all, how did you get in here? And secondly, there are several reasons as to why you should never invade Russia. First off, Russia is very, very, very big. Most maps make Russia seem big, but not massive, due to the fact that the world is round and that does not easily translate to a flat map. Other factors like perspective and relative size come into play as well. All that being said, Russia is big. 6.612 million square miles big. To put this into perspective, the surface area of the good old United States of America is only 3.797 million square miles. The whole of Europe is roughly 2.4 million square miles. Russia is almost double the size of the U.S. and nearly triple the size of Europe. Outside of the sheer size of the nation of Russia, you have to contend with the weather. The thing about Russia's weather is that while they have absolutely brutal winters where you can freeze to death if you're not careful, be buried in snow while you're still in your tent, and where frostbite is almost guaranteed, what most people forget is that a heavy winter comes with a heavy thaw. Russian springtime, especially in the European areas of Russia where our story takes place, are muddy. Very, very muddy. In these spring thaws, the newly created water flows out of the mountains and into the rivers, flooding them and making them nearly impassable. Meanwhile, the snow, simply on the ground, melts away, creating bogs and mud traps, which make travel a slog fest for individuals in small groups and an impossible nightmare for people who might be trying to march an army, say, towards Moscow, just to give an example. And if you think the summertime would save you, it won't. The summers in the mountains and plain regions of Russia are brutally hot and with little to no cover from the sun and absolutely no water pretty much anywhere to be found. Now that I have hopefully conveyed to you why invading Russia is a terrible idea, let's talk about the time that a man decided to invade Russia anyway. Napoleon Bonaparte was born in 1769 on the Italian island of Corsica as the second son of a lawyer. Though Corsica was originally an Italian island owned by the city-state of Genoa, after the Seven Years' War, the island was sold to the French in 1797, which means that when Napoleon was born in 1769, he was technically a French citizen, though his blood was of Italian descent. Skipping over subject matter best covered in a biographical story, Napoleon pursued a military career and through a mixture of luck, skill, charisma, and good timing, eventually rose to the ranks and hijacked the spirit of the French Revolution to have himself crowned as Emperor of France. 
Once crowned emperor, Napoleon decided that an emperor needed, well, an empire. So he did as the emperors of Rome did and went out a conquering around Europe. From around 1803 to 1811, Napoleon effectively ran roughshod over all of Europe, defeating three separate coalitions of European powers in three separate wars within a roughly eight-year time span. The diminutive emperor stood tall over the rest of Europe at this time and, well, hang on, I need to digress here a moment before going on. In the narrative of history, there has been a running joke about the fact that Napoleon was a short man. Brilliant tactician and a master strategist, but a short stack all the same. They don't call it having a Napoleon complex without reason, right? Well, the truth is they have a reason for the nickname, but it has nothing to do with Napoleon's actual height. Napoleon stood somewhere around 5'5 to 5'7, which places him safely at average height for French and most of European men in the 1800s. The reasons for the comments on his stature come from a few different sources. The first is that, much like myself, Napoleon surrounded himself with tall people. Not wholly by choice. You see, at this time, it was expected that commanding officers be taller than most of their troops. The reason for this is so that they can inspire them in battle and also have a good vantage point in combat. This height quote-unquote requirement, was especially important for the cavalry. Napoleon, being only average height, would have, again, much like myself, looked short standing next to his commanding officers or riding on horseback. It is theorized that this was also the reason why he was originally put into the artillery commander position. You don't need to be tall when you're commanding the big guns in the back, you see. The second reason for the myth of Napoleon's height comes from the fact that the French measurement system at this time does not cleanly translate to imperial or even metric systems of measurement. Avoiding math like the plague, the long and short of it is, eh, see what I did there, was that on paper, Napoleon was said to be 5'2 by French metrics, but in reality was closer to 5'5 or 5'7 depending on how you do the math, which I again will be avoiding like the plague. Finally, and most relevant to the phrase Napoleon complex, in 1803 at the outset of the Napoleonic Wars, a British cartoonist named James Gilray created a print which depicted Napoleon as a short and angry man who threw childlike tantrums and titled the work <clears throat> Manic Raving or Little Bonnie in a Strong Fit. I kid you not, that is the title of the work. Gilray would go on to create many more of these cartoons depicting Napoleon as a short and angry man, and others would see the success of these prints and pick up on it and start creating work similar on their own. This would spark the very English colloquialism of the Napoleon complex, coming to mean a short person who is angry, overcompensating for their height, or sensitive about their height. Or all three at once. With that short digression out of the way, we now return to our chilling tale. Over the course of Napoleon's eight years of war against the rest of Europe, Bonaparte found himself in control of all of mainland Europe, either directly or indirectly. The only force which stood strong against him was the island nation of Britain. Though the British had spearheaded the wars against Napoleon, they remained safe on the island while Napoleon swept their allies aside. In an inverse of the Monty Python quest for the Holy Grail French knights, it was the English's turn to tell the French to go away or be taunted a second time. Not liking the idea of being taunted a second time, nor even a first time for that matter, Napoleon ordered all of the other nations of Europe into a trade embargo with England. For a time, the other nations complied until Tsar Alexander I of Russia decided he was going to start trading with England. And well, imagine this. You're with a group of your friends at a bar or a party when this new guy walks in. You sort of know him. He walks in and proceeds to pick a fight with your pal Prussia. Now, Prussia is a big guy and a tough fighter, so you guys expect him to level this new, smaller guy. But then the small guy kicks the absolute crap out of Prussia. 
Spurred on by your ruddy Britain, you guys, in waves of whoever is able to stand at that point, go after this small guy one after another and over and over again. But one fight after another, he kicks the crap out of all of you until it's just him and Britain left. Britain falls back to the other side of the bar and sits at a table on his own. And this new guy, who you learn's name is Napoleon, tells all of you not to talk to or go sit with Britain or he'll beat you up again. There is some tension and awkward staring and muttering until, from the back, Russia stands up, locks eyes with Napoleon, walks over to Britain, shakes hands with him, and offers him a beer, all while maintaining eye contact with Napoleon. That is essentially what went down in Europe, and Napoleon was outraged, so he gathered up all his forces and marched from France towards Russia, gathering allies and supplies in the German states as he went. As Napoleon marched on Russia, he gathered to himself a force numbering roughly 600,000 troops, 200,000 being the elite French veteran troops, many of whom had been in service since before Napoleon took power, while others had been with him since his earliest days as an officer. The remaining 400,000 were essentially conscripts from Napoleon's quote-unquote allies, and those are very big air quotes around allies, mind you. With Napoleon racing to Russia, we see him make the first of a series of mistakes which would lead to him having to retreat from Russia and ultimately losing power three years later. The first mistake Napoleon made was actually entering Russia itself, because as we stated before, you never, ever invade Russia. His second mistake after entering Russia was his timing. He chose to invade Russia during the summer months, which, while normally is prime time in Europe for good old fighting, in the westernmost portions of Russia, the summers are brutally hot and dry, with little water or shade to speak of, so not the best time to invade Russia. Napoleon's third mistake was his haste and handling of his forces. As stated before, Napoleon had an army of around 600,000 men. The Russians could not even come close to fielding an army of that size. Yet, Napoleon chose to split his forces and make them garrison local areas as they passed through them. Now, in theory, this is a sound strategy, securing supply lines and fortifying a potential retreat. The problem is, he used the conscripted portions of his forces for this task. Said conscripts may, if you're lucky, just go home when you lose, leaving your retreat unguarded but also open. Or, if you're unlucky, they may join the guys chasing after you and force you to fight your way out. So, not the best choice of rear guard. Napoleon's fourth mistake came in his handling of logistics. As stated previously, Russia is massive, and Napoleon's supplies were coming from France, not any of the border German states. So, the distance for his supplies to travel was around 3,863 miles, or 6,217 kilometers. To run a supply line that long is a logistical nightmare, even if Napoleon was moving at a slow pace. Napoleon was not moving slowly. Napoleon was attempting to pull a blitzkrieg without tanks, so needless to say, his troops suffered greatly in the summer heat of Russia with staggered supplies and very little water, forced to pillage the countryside as best they could, which would come back to bite them later. In the face of these adverse conditions, Napoleon pressed on and in September of 1812 finally faced off with the Russian army led by Prince Mikhail Kutuzov at Borodino. The French forces at this point numbered around 130,000 men, while the Russians numbered around 120,000 men. When the battle commenced, it was an absolute bloodbath, with a total of 280,000 men and 1,227 artillery guns clashing at the fields of Borodino, the sounds of which famously inspired Tchaikovsky's 1812 overture. The battle lasted for around two days, and in that time, both sides lost about a third of their forces, with the French losing around 30,000 men and the Russians nearly 50,000. Having been beaten, the Russians retreated from the field and abandoned Moscow, which Napoleon would capture a week later. 
Normally in war, this would be the end of things. The enemy army was defeated and the capital was taken. The only thing left to do was wait for an official surrender. And that is just what Napoleon did. He waited. And waited. And waited. And waited some more. Because Napoleon's fifth mistake was not realizing that the Russians could not care less about what city you take. Russia is, as stated before, a massive country. Napoleon had taken less than a third of it in his conquests. Napoleon had effectively knocked the drink out of Russia's hand, only to look behind Russia and realize that he had 20 more drinks behind him and a whole bottle of Siberian vodka still available. Napoleon had to face the reality that he could not conquer Russia, and so he was forced to retreat back to France. Napoleon's sixth mistake, I hope you're keeping count at home, was a forced result of his second and fourth mistakes coming back to haunt him. His timing for the invasion of Russia was not only during the summer, but it was also late summer, which meant that by the time he took Moscow, it was late fall with winter fast approaching. On top of that, because he had strained his supply lines, he could not logistically hope to hold Moscow through the winter. So, Napoleon's sixth mistake was retreating from Moscow in the winter without proper supplies like blankets, coats, or snowshoes. Napoleon's march through the Russian winter was a horror story of men freezing to death on their feet or succumbing to the cold in their tents at night. There was no time to bury the dead, for the Russian army shadowed the French like the specter of death, ever vigilant and ever hovering over the shoulders of men. When Napoleon finally reached France, his army was crushed, his quote-unquote allies had deserted him, and his French veteran corps, the elite Grande Armée, was shattered, a ghost of its former glory, numbering roughly only 40 to 50,000 men out of the 200,000 that had proudly marched into Russia. If you want a glimpse into what it was like to be a soldier in the Russian campaign, I encourage you to read The Conscript by Erkman Chatrian. The book is technically a work of historical fiction, but it does a good job of capturing the horror of the campaign from the eyes of a man conscripted into the army and marched to a land far from home to fight a war he did not believe in and face a winter in a land he did not care for far from the woman he loves. It's a really good book. To tie everything up into a nice bow, Napoleon's great gamble had failed miserably. His army was destroyed, and when the Sixth Coalition came knocking, Napoleon could not keep them from kicking in his door, and would ultimately lose power in 1813, and then gain it back in 1815, but then lose it again a hundred days later. Points for trying. Regardless, Napoleon's invasion of Russia is a lesson of history which should not soon be forgotten. So come back next episode where we will cover Hitler forgetting the lessons of history and invading Russia. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show.